0: Welcome to Newcastle Family History Society Podcasts. The Newcastle Family History Society, located on a land in Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia, provides support for those interested in family history. In this instalment of the Bad Girls series, Jane Ison showcases the success stories that have arisen from the young women who were sent to the Newcastle Industrial School and Reformatory.
1: Not every girl admitted to an industrial school remained a rebel after they left. Once they were either apprenticed or married, many went on to live quiet lives and no longer appeared in the newspapers for all the wrong reasons. Admission to an institution could leave a stain and Newcastle, the Vernon and later Biloela developed reputations, so it was often the case that like convicts, these children tried to forget or gloss over this period of their life. They didn't share this history with their family, and especially not with the wider society where often an admission to a school was long remembered by authorities. The government had accepted the responsibility of educating and training children for future employment. Superintendents were expected to find girls a suitable position when they left. Like every institution, that responsibility was only as good as the person in charge. Agnes King had had little opportunity to discharge girls, as she was only superintendent for the first 14 months of the school's existence. The only discharges King made were for older girls whose families successfully proved that they had been illegally arrested because they were over the age of 16. There were quite a number of these girls. From the time he arrived in Newcastle in December 1868, the new superintendent, Joseph Hines Clark, began to discharge girls who had been in the school for 12 months or more. Some families requested that their daughter be returned to them. This request triggered a police check on the family and their home and the girls were returned to their parents only if the police report was satisfactory and the family and the home were considered suitable. Apprenticeships were arranged for girls who were 12 years or older and ended when the girl turned 18. Apprenticeships were popular with families, especially if it could be arranged close to where the family lived. Clark also tried to find employment for girls over 18. He managed to find places where girls went into service as they were too old to be apprenticed. Clark was thorough and followed up any problems or complaints made by either the girls or their employers. Reformatory girls were simply discharged and no employment was found for them by the school. Most of the 193 inmates of the industrial school and reformatory went on to live a more settled life after they left Newcastle. The four girls who feature in this podcast give insights into how the process operated. The story of the girl bushrovers hit the newspapers in September 1867 with this shocking report reprinted from the Bathurst Free Press our readers will remember that we recently referred to some midnight prowlers in the neighbourhood of Dennis Island and Kalula, by whom several clotheslines had been stripped and a quantity of clothing taken and carried away. On Wednesday morning last, between one and two o'clock, Samuel Sweetman discovered two horses tied up in the bush near his home. He observed that one of the horses had a saddle and the other a sack filled with wool he thought this very suspicious and took possession of the horses. Fearing that the owners might be bushrangers, an alarm was raised, but soon after he saw the heads of two females emerging from the creek. They were disguised and pretended that they had lost their way. They also claimed the horses. A light was brought and Sweetman identified the girls as being the children of a man named Edwards, residing in Kalula and as one of them had been living as a servant in the neighbourhood, he knew that the tale of their being lost was a pretense. Sweetman detained them until the next morning, when he followed the tracks of their horses and found that they had told falsehoods. A search warrant was obtained, and on going to Edward's residence with a constable, a great quantity of articles stolen from different lines was discovered and identified. The girls were taken into custody on the charge of robbing, and the mother was arrested for receiving stolen property. The father was away at the Lachlan with his team, and had been away for some time. The girls appeared in court, but the court was anxious to preserve them from a trial on account of their youth, one of them being about fifteen, and the other fourteen years old. A telegram was sent to Newcastle where it was learned that the public institution there was an industrial school and not a reformatory. He decided to send the girls there. The mother was tried and found guilty of receiving the articles, knowing that they had been stolen, and was sentenced to 12 months hard labour in Bath's jail. There were three young children with her in the dock, and the feeling of horror manifested at her conduct in training her daughters to a career of crime was universal. And so 15-year-old Sarah, 14-year-old Alicia and 7-year-old Mariah Jane Edwards arrived in Newcastle. The sisters were the daughters of Thomas Edwards and his wife Jane Haycock, who had married near Bathurst in 1846. The family lived about 30 kilometres south of Bathurst, in the locality of Kalula. Thomas was a transportee who in 1834 at the age of 11 had been convicted of larceny at the Old Bailey. He was sentenced to seven years' transportation and arrived aboard the John Barry in 1836. Jane Haycock was the daughter of the convicts Richard Haycock who had arrived on the barwell and Mary Linehan, who had been transported aboard the borough. The sisters were all assessed by Dr Richard Harris's virgins and remained in Newcastle without incident until Clark arrived and began the process of discharging firstly Sarah and a year later Alicia. By December 1868 Sarah had been at the school for 13 months and Clark wrote to the colonial secretary Requesting permission to find a situation for her and five others. Assessing age for the authorities at this time was very difficult, and Clark must have believed that Sarah was already close to eighteen, so she was discharged as a domestic servant to William Howard Greenway, a Newcastle fruiterer, who Clark described as a gentleman. Sarah was to be paid six shillings a week. When Clark contacted her father in 1870, Thomas confirmed that Sarah had remained in service for ten months before she had returned to Bathurst, and was well. Sarah married John Wilson in Bathurst in 1871, and the couple had ten children. She died in 1937. Her obituary in the Bathurst papers read in part, the death took place on Saturday at her residence, Rosedale, Kalula, of one of the oldest residents of the Kalula district in the person of Mrs. Sarah Wilson at the age of 86 years. She had lived in Kalula all her life and was predeceased by her husband, Mr. John Wilson. The funeral took place yesterday morning, moving from her late residence to the Church of England portion of the Kalula Cemetery. There was a large attendance of relatives and friends, and many beautiful floral tributes were received. Alicia's discharge from Newcastle occurred in December, 1869. Clark arranged an apprenticeship for her with Mr Mason, a farmer of Dempsey Island on the Hunter River. Alicia was to be paid five shillings a week as a general servant. Clark described her as of good character, and between 16 and 17 years of age. And so Alicia took up the apprenticeship. As was often the case, in April 1870 her indentures were cancelled because Mason had had to return to England, and Alicia was returned to the school to wait for a new position. Just over a fortnight later, a proposal of marriage was received by Clark from the German immigrant Peter Lemke. Clark, always thorough, investigated Lemke's character and life habits and reported to the Colonial Secretary that Lemke had been working as a gardener in the Newcastle area for some years and had money in the bank. Of Alicia, Clarke said, She is 17 years of age and of quiet habits. I think the offer a good one for her, and they being very much together when on the island, I would recommend the case to the favourable consideration of the Honourable Colonial Secretary. Permission was given for the marriage, so on the 2nd of May, Clark wrote to Thomas Edwards to inform him of both the cancelled apprenticeship and to request his permission for Alicia to marry Lemke. Clark said, Sir, While Alicia was on the island she made the acquaintance of a young man named Peter Lemke who now proposes to marry Alicia. Lemke is about 30 years of age and from everything that I have learned is a man of good character. He has saved out of his own earnings about 250 pounds and proposes to lodge in the savings bank 100 pounds to Alicia's credit. As far as I can see I must say the match would be to the girl's advantage. But, at the same time, I think it is due to you, as her father, to ask if you have any objection to the girl getting married, or rather, if you will give your consent to their union. Thomas gave permission, and on the 6th of June 1870, Alicia married Peter Johann Lemke in Newcastle. The couple had eight children, but only three survived for longer than one day. These newborns were buried at the St Andrew's Church of England Cemetery, Mayfield, then called North Waratah. The home where she and Peter eventually settled, they named Golula. Alicia died in 1902 at the age of 50 and was buried in Newcastle's Sandgate Cemetery. Once her older sisters left Newcastle, Mariah Jane was alone. She was one of the girls who transferred to Bill Wheeler on Cockatoo Island when the Newcastle Institution closed in May 1871. Mariah was discharged by Clark's replacement as superintendent, George Lucas. Discovering details of any discharges made by Lucas is rare as he either sent little correspondence to the colonial secretary or he didn't bother complying with the regulations imposed upon him by the government. One letter about Mariah survives. In November 1871 she was apprenticed to Thomas Hale, a JP in Sydney. The apprenticeship was for six years and she was to receive one shilling a week for the first two years, two shillings a week for the third and fourth years and three shillings a week for her final two years. Lucas described Mariah as well-behaved. The colonial secretary commented that Hale was a great supporter of the school and believed that he would show an interest in Mariah's welfare. No records survive to show whether Mariah finished her apprenticeship, but by 1894 she had returned to Bathurst, where she married the widower, Charles James Smith. The couple had three children and Mariah also cared for the three children from his first marriage. By the time of their golden wedding anniversary, the couple had moved to Five Dock in Sydney. Mariah Jane was the longest lived of all the Newcastle admissions. She died in Bathurst in 1961 at the age of 101. And was buried at Kullula Cemetery with her sister and father. The fourth success story in this podcast is of Elizabeth Ann Phillips. She was the daughter of Peter Phillips and Mary McTavish. She had been born and subsequently arrested in Cooma, and was admitted to the school in February eighteen sixty nine, when she was eleven. During the riot at the school in March 1871, Elizabeth, in company with Sarah Dixon and Mary Windsor, were charged with destroying government property. But after a trial in Newcastle, Clark requested that they be reprimanded and returned to the school. Elizabeth transferred to Bill Wheeler in May 1871, and in September that year she was apprenticed by George Lucas to the mathematical instrument maker Angelo Tonaghi of Hunter's Hill. Her apprenticeship was to last for four years and she was to be paid a starting rate of three shillings a week that would increase by one shilling a week for each year of her apprenticeship. Unfortunately, in January 1872, Elizabeth was arrested and charged with stealing a gold locket from Mrs Tonaghi. In court, she was sentenced to return to Biloela on Cockatoo Island, but this time to the separate reformatory school under the care of Agnes King, where she remained for just over two years. On her release from Biloela, Elizabeth made her way back to her family, and seven months later, on 4th of October 1874, the day after she turned 17, Elizabeth married Henry Glass in Cooma. All seemingly went well, and by December 1877, Henry and Elizabeth had three children. Henry also had a half-brother named John Glass, who had the alias Black Glass, as his mother was of Aboriginal descent. John Glass had a stepdaughter named Mary McCormack. In December 1877, Henry and Elizabeth had moved to Cara when Elizabeth came to the assistance of Mary McCormack during an assault on her by her stepfather. The witness to the incident, Matthew Adamson, described Elizabeth's courage in attempting to prevent Mary's abduction and rape by her stepfather.
2: John Glass held Mary McCormack by the hands as she was trying to resist Mrs. Henry Glass went to her assistance. Mrs. Glass took a stick with her and struck Glass on the back of the head. He kept trying to hold Mary, so Mrs. Glass struck him again. He let Mary McCormick go, turn round suddenly, and stabbed Mrs. Glass in the breast with her shear blade. This was the first time I saw the shear blade in Glass's hands. The first time prisoner stabbed Mrs. Glass. She tried to get away, and he followed her and stabbed her in the shoulder. He then left Mrs. Glass and followed Mary McCormick. I was standing at the door looking on. I saw Glass stab Mary McCormick twice with a sheer blade as she was running away from him. I was about thirty yards away. I did not offer to go to the assistance or the women. I did not go up to help May. I might have been stabbed
1: myself. John was captured, tried and sentenced to death, but after a successful petition, his sentence was commuted to life in prison. Elizabeth, although she was in a serious condition for some time, eventually recovered from her wounds and went on to have 13 more children. She died in Bega on the 26th of November 1931. It is impossible to know whether an admission of a child to any institution was an opportunity or not. Every case was different. The early lives of these four women are just a sample of the stories of the 193 girls admitted to Newcastle. All admissions reflect the difficult situations experienced by the poor and disadvantaged at this time, but these four lives resulted in strong families and many descendants. For those searching for fractured families, putting them back together can be difficult. None of these girls was initially apprenticed back to the place where they were arrested, although three of them found their way home. Children sent to industrial schools could end up a great distance away from their family, and this makes tracing them complicated. Understanding the apprenticeship process in government institutions can explain how a marriage occurred a great distance from an ancestor's birthplace. An early admission can explain why your ancestor did not know the names of their parents when they married. If you are confronted with unexpected or difficult research, investigate whether your ancestor had been in an institution. Sometimes lack of evidence and continuity in a family is proof of institutionalisation and it was often the case that children and families in this time were admitted to more than one institution. In tracing industrial school children, it may be helpful to also use records from the New South Wales jails, the Sydney Benevolent Asylum, the Randwick Asylum and the Orphan Schools. It is also useful to look for parents and siblings in these institutions. In my final podcast in this series, I will look at the last months the school operated in Newcastle, including an account of the riots of 1871.
0: Thanks once again, Jane. Another interesting account of the lives of some of the girls of Newcastle Industrial School. Be sure to join us again for the final episode in this current series on Newcastle Family History Society Podcasts.